1: Hey, it's Ian, 207 here on WWL Radio. I'm just a few seconds away from speaking to Professor of Policy at Duke University. Philip Napoli is going to join us to uh, talk about disinformation in terms of the conflict in the Middle East over there between Israel and Hamas. Before I do that, there's two things that I want to do. I want to go ahead and put this Pop-Tart T-shirt in my cart. If you weren't tuned in earlier, there's a, a, a T-shirt that I really want to buy. It looks like a Wildberry Pop-Tart. I don't know why I feel so compelled to buy this T-shirt, I, I'm, but I'm going to. I'm sure it's going to be cheap. You know, It'll probably fade, start to fall apart after a couple laundry cycles. But, man, I just got to have this shirt. I also wanted to share with you uh, more news about the uh, new passenger rail service that is now closer than ever. To coming back between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, according to this agreement that was announced by the governor's office today, this passenger service between the Capitol and the Crescent could start as early as 2027. Not soon enough, but I'll take a half loaf. The route, which has now this is interesting. The route has yet to be named. Let's name it. Right now on the Oakland Art Jewelers talking text line, 504 260 two six zero one eight seventy, text in the, n- <laughs> the what you think should be the name of the passenger rail line between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. You know, they all have these kind of exotic names like the Sunset Limited or, uh, you know, the one between here and Chicago is the city of New Orleans. And, they you know, it's all, it's all sort of romantic. What should we call the passenger rail line between Baton Rouge and New Orleans? Shoot me a text. I'll read the funniest ones. But the route uh, is planned to have the following stops. Downtown Baton Rouge, South Baton Rouge, Gonzales, Laplace, MSY, somewhere in Jefferson Parish, and of course the Union Passenger Terminal in New Orleans. That's going to be great news, not just for Baton Rouge and New Orleans, but also for Gonzales and Laplace. Anytime that there's like a sort of, uh, you know, easy transit hub, between a big metropolitan area like uh, Baton Rouge or New Orleans and some of these, you know, further out uh, uh, suburbs or even exurbs like Gonzales and Laplace. You know what that means? Jobs. J.O.B.S. Economic development, new housing starts, more investment. Everybody's going to like that. You know, I bet Michael Hecht is going to talk about that pretty soon if he hasn't already. Anyway, more information about that later. I'm very excited. Uh, text me what you think the name of that rail line should be. Uh, Professor Napoli, thanks for hanging on while I took uh, took care of some business there. Professor Napoli is the author of this book, uh, Social Media and the Public Interest, Media Regulation in the Disinformation Age. Professor, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so tell me, uh, as, you, as you see it, uh, what are some of the key challenges that are faced by not news consumers necessarily, but let's start with what are the key challenges faced by news producers, journalists, and fact checkers when they're dealing with disinformation during major world events like the conflict in the Middle East?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and, and the nature of the challenges is starting to change a bit. You know, this is an always evolving space. So if you, if you think about, you know, legitimate news producers who, who, still rely to some degree on, for example, social media platforms uh, to, uh, to reach their audience. Um, we have seen in the past few months uh, dramatic changes in how these platforms operate. One, they're actually beginning to deprioritize news in their um, content curation and recommendation algorithms. And two, at the same time, they have been scaling back dramatically dramatically uh, the resources that they devote to to policing and filtering out disinformation, so it's a bit of a perfect storm right now that makes these uh, that makes social media broadly defined a, a challenging place for legitimate news to uh, to find folks.
1: Professor, let's go ahead and name names here. Um, people that have been listening to me on the radio for a while know that I'm uh, the farthest possible thing from a fan of Elon Musk. Our <laughs> our Facebook and YouTube. And, I, I mean, those are the two big major ones, Instagram, I guess, but that's meta. Are they, are they really better than Elon Musk era Twitter or X, or are they kind of all guilty of the same stuff and we just hear about Twitter more?
2: Well, you know, uh, Musk is definitely the pioneer uh, as far yeah. as uh, some of these, you know, but, but the other platforms have actually uh, followed suit to some extent as well. Uh, even Google News, I mean there was massive layoffs at Google News uh, recently. so the platforms there seems to be almost a cultural shift within the you know the tech sector broadly uh, that that new that journalism is is not something that they uh, consider uh, an important priority in terms of serving their users uh, you know to the extent that they that they did in the past. Uh, so yeah, it's it's you know uh, it's unfortunate that that X has been sort of the um, the poster child and sort of is, is, has been the most extreme in terms of scaling back what they've been doing to, to police disinformation, uh, and really, interestingly, has been in some very high-profile sort of food fights with individual news organizations as well. Ones that, that Musk takes a particular uh, dislike to. <sighs> uh, but you know, what, you know, what we're seeing on Facebook, what we're seeing on Instagram, what we're seeing on YouTube is, is some similar patterns as
1: well. He's such a child. Okay, so the, the, degra- the degradation of the news product, the deprioritization of real news as opposed to fake news, which gets higher engagement and has a, you know, a, a more easily measurable emotional response, um, at the same time that they are sort of taking away the guardrails, the regulatory systems that keep bad actors from spreading disinformation on these platforms, what other factors are contributing to this trend uh
2: well obviously there's the you know the you know, the economic downturn that the uh, that many of these platforms have experienced you know they've been uh, laying off you know in, in folks in, in a variety of, of of areas so they you know the the days of when they could sort of you know burn money on 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 a, on a public a more of a public service orientation uh, you know are are seem to be past uh, uh-huh. at least at least for the time being so there's um there's the you know there's the mindset that we've heard expressed you know off the record that you know they've reached a point in their evolution where they feel like you know when it comes to news and when it comes to disinformation, we feel like we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't so why why bother why bother? Uh, you know trying as hard. And then there is what we've seen more globally in countries like Australia and countries like Canada, uh, where regulations have been passed that have sort of obligated the platforms uh, to provide compensation uh, to to news organizations, um, you know, for 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 distributing their content. Uh, and I think it is still the case in Canada. I think Meta has just gone dark uh, on news for that reason, essentially in in protest that they would be forced to uh, to provide payment.
1: Wow. It just, it sucks so bad in particular. You know, I've, I've worked here at WWL since 2006. For a while, I was kind of under the umbrella of the newsroom. I was um, a digital media and creative strategist person, which meant it was my job uh, to put all of WWL's news articles on Facebook and on Twitter and in, in, in learning how to do that, I had to learn how to kind of, you know, manipulate the algorithm in the right way and post at the right time and use the right kind of language to make sure that our content was being served to the right audiences at the right time on the right platform. Over time, that took such a high priority, and I'm not even talking about WWL radio, I mean for every single news outlet you know, Facebook and Twitter went from being kind of, oh, yeah, I guess we can do that in addition to just inviting people to visit our website. As soon as that became uh, an option, it became compulsory, and it became the only way to get your your content out to these news consumers. And they gobbled up all the money. They gobbled up a lot of the advertising revenue. They made themselves the center of that universe, deprioritized real news. And now they're just walking away from the business altogether, where does that leave digital news producers? You know, ranging from the New York Times all the way down to you know, uh, you know Uncle Liberty's you know Freedom Blog. Wh- where does that leave us? That is such a great question, and I think, you know, again, personal opinion. You know,
2: long term and in the grand scheme of things, if we moved in a direction where people you know returned to the habit of accessing their preferred news sites directly. Um, I think that's from a you know a democracy standpoint that's that's preferred yeah. can the economics of that uh, work uh, you know there there are a number of, of, of news outlets that at this point in time have, have sort of looked at the numbers and said yeah you know what um, we can you know we don't need them as much as, as badly as we thought especially in the current environment where if you if you look at the graph of, of how much, uh, traffic; these platforms are referring to to major news sites. Mm-hmm. It's it's cratering, so it's yeah. it's it's dropping dramatically. So I would love it if, if if the news industry could wean themselves off of their dependence on 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 social. Uh, now, of course, what that then leaves though is this interesting sort of vacuum that can <laughs> on these platforms that can get filled uh, by disinformation purveyors. So I would certainly, you know, for this, you know, the ideal here is that yeah, that news consumers. in in mass also realize that these platforms are not the place to go to try to inform yourself Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and rehabituate themselves to access news outlets directly. Uh, I think that would, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think that would, that would be wonderful. Now, again, it's a a whole economic model was built, however, over a decade or so uh, on, on relying on the, uh, on the exposure and the distribution and the, and the, and the audience, base that these platforms provided. So it's, 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 a, it's going to be a painful transition.
1: Uh, I wanted to ask you, too, and we'll just sidestep a little bit here before we come back to uh, Israel, Hamas, uh, Elon Musk. Uh, the European Union has, a, a, I think, a much more aggressive a regulatory apparatus in place for these kinds of things. I'm, I'm remembering now, and I didn't plan to ask you about this today, so I'm sorry if I don't have the precise details, but th- they just find meta- or they said if you don't change the way that you're protecting people's privacy information, you won't be allowed to operate in the European Union anymore. What happened there? What was that?
2: I'm actually not sure the specific decision you're referring no, to there, no, but, no. but but what this what you are referring to more broadly is the Digital Services Act, which uh, just went into effect um, not all that long ago in the European Union, and it does impose a very different kind of regulatory model over these platforms. Than we have here in the U.S. Yeah. We we don't have one here in the U.S. But I know under the Digital Services Act, uh, violations can result in fines of up to six percent of uh, of platform's total revenue. So it's it's you know it's a significant uh, cost for for being in violation. Uh, but it truly requires these platforms to be responsive. When uh, they are informed that there is illegal, you know, broad, now the term illegal content is used, and that can vary by country by country in yeah. the in the EU, of course, uh, but it can encompass things, you know, ranging from uh, terrorist content to hate speech, uh, things of that sort, uh, election manipulation. Uh, so it can encompass a lot of the kind of things that we are concerned about, uh, and and you know, in fact, in relation to what's been happening in uh, in Israel and Gaza. Um, you know, the EU has, has uh, put out requests for information to X, TikTok, and Meta uh, to ask them to explain you know, what they are doing to, to prevent uh, the circulation of, of, of terrorist-originated content and, other, and, and, and disinformation on their platforms. Because a lot of research has shown just over the course of this past month that disinformation related to the, to the conflict there – has just been through the roof. Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: uh, Professor Napoli, I'd like to keep you around for one more segment. Can you do that for me, man? Sure, sure. Okay, superb. We'll step away here, take care of some biz. We're going to come back with my guest, Professor Philip Napoli, who's a professor of uh, public policy at Duke University, author of Social Media and the Public Interest, Media Regulation, In the disinformation age, do you think that America could benefit maybe from a more aggressive regulatory apparatus like the ones that we were just talking about in Europe and Canada? I know people generally aren't big fans of more government regulation, but the way I look at it is social media is kind of like the automobile. It's invented. Everybody loves it. Everybody uses it. But it takes us a couple decades to figure out how to make it safe. So maybe this is the seatbelt moment. Is this the tobacco moment where we finally, as a society, allow our government to do its job, its prescribed duty of protecting us from things like this? I don't know. I want to hear from you. The number is 504-260-1870. Shoot me a text. Give me a call. We'll pick those up when we come back. I'm Ian Hogan for Scoot, and I'll be right back On the Oklahoma Jewelers talking text line, here's a text that says it isn't the government's responsibility here. Regulation equals compromised liberty. Thomas Jefferson very famously said our liberty depends on the freedom of the press and that cannot be limited without being lost. The nearest I come to social media is commenting on YouTube videos. So I'm not subject to the garbage. Good for you, man. YouTube videos is a place to be. Um, uh, Professor Napoli is uh, my guest here from Duke University. And I'm not asking you to get political here, sir, but just kind of, you know, as a professor and a person who's really, uh, you know, an an expert on the matter, what do you think about this texter's assertion that the freedom of the press cannot be limited without it being lost?
2: Well, you know, the very first part of that, I think, is where the, the devil is in the details. I don't think these digital platforms actually qualify as the press. And I think I think these platforms exactly. would actually not want to be
1: called they don't want to be they don't want <laughs> to be in that business. They're not publishers. Right. They've spent yeah. billions of dollars lobbying governments all over the world to avoid taking responsibility for the content that's posted on their platform because then they can be regulated in a way that they don't want to, right?
2: Right, yeah. And so you know who 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 constitutes the press is a fascinating and, you know, contentious issue in, in and of itself. But I think, you know, there's probably something closer to a fairly widespread spread agreement that where, you know, that whatever the press is, these platforms aren't aren't part of it. Yeah, uh, they are a distribution system. That's a different thing.
1: OK, there's a person also here on the Oakland Heart Jewelers talking text line that I've kind of been uh, quarreling with for the last couple minutes. Uh, They say, uh, you're a child, you're hating on Elon, blah, blah, blah. Every news outlet reported that Israel bombed a hospital, except for Fox. They waited to verify, yet you say nothing about it. Uh, That should be the main story here. Uh, I don't think anyone could ever point to a time in the last couple days where I said, Israel bombed that hospital, and I refuse to believe anything else, you know, um... That's not even the primary reason that I invited you on today, Professor. I'm I'm curious what you think about how, you know, the New York Times and a lot of Western legacy media very famously just kind of published Hamas's press release about that incident without a lot of scrutiny. But that issue of the hospital strike aside, what I was most interested in talking to you about today is all these blue check accounts On Twitter that used to be a sign if you had a blue check that used to be a sign that you know you probably worked for uh, a news outlet that had a physical address that had an editorial staff that could be you know called out effectively for getting something wrong all that has gone away now now all the blue checks are uh, you know Hitler was right 420 and um, you know just all sorts of just random trolls but they've all got these blue check marks and their content is being boosted it's being prioritized because that's what elon musk wants us to see he wants us to see the content from the people who are paying to be there but that doesn't mean that they're worth listening to or that they have any credibility whatsoever that could be anybody that could be coleman in the next studio it could be uh, a teenager in Tehran who just wants to make Americans hate each other and sow confusion and division. So that was kind of supposed to be the thrust of this conversation. How do we, as news consumers, it, it, we're we're just sort of left to fend for ourselves against that sort of thing? Now, what are we supposed to do, man?
2: Right. Yeah. No. So that that, that verification process, unfortunately, has you know become fairly meaningless there. Um, and that's been one of the frustrating things you know about about all of all of the platforms that they you know they could be doing a heck of a lot more um, to you know in 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 the labeling space uh, than providing useful you know you know consumer guide guidelines through how they label individual accounts. but they've always been very hesitant. I mean, you can you can go on to Facebook and just, declare yourself a news organization and yeah. you get the news label um it's a shame that they have never really thought about uh being more rigorous uh, and stringent and it, and it comes from a, a culture around which these platforms were created which was grow 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 and you know barriers to entry uh you know keep them to a a bare uh minimum uh and so that that's, that's really really persisted uh but absolutely you know that you know and i think uh you know Musk is is is, is removing some. Uh, I mean, he took away the New York Times blue check mark, yeah. so that it's uh, you know people can't you know uh, it's on the same footing as any sites that are choosing to to spoof pl- uh, accounts that are choosing to spoof the New York Times, etc., uh, or, or imitate it.
1: Uh, so yeah. yes,
2: it's a frustrating place. If, again, if you are if you're using that environment to try to inform yourself at this point in time. Um, you know, rule number one, I would say is, is, is don't. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Thank you. A couple uh, Elon Musk fanboys here on the, uh, on the Oakland Art Jewelers talking text line. Uh, I'll just take this moment to tell you guys uh, Musk is a, is a dumpster fire. X is a tire fire. Uh, Reading now from Axios.com just from this morning, X, formerly Twitter has hemorrhaged users and advertisers in his first year under Elon's ownership. Uh, Let's see. App downloads fell 38% globally between October 22 and September 23. In the United States, downloads fell 57%. Web traffic is down 7% globally and 11% in the United States in the first nine months of 2023. Global first-time downloads are flat. Traffic to Elon Musk's personal profile and posts are up 96%. (laughs) year over year this man needs attention like sharks need blood it's ridiculous he broke that website i'll never forgive him for that so elon musk has actually a very particular specific role uh, in endorsing and reposting content from twitter accounts that are known for spreading disinformation which is a real problem in in his quest to almost it seems like destroy twitter on purpose you know, he paid forty four billion dollars for a company that was worth like twelve billion dollars and is now worth eight billion dollars. So that's good businessing there, Elon. But he's he's fired all the people that are responsible for tackling disinformation on that platform. Does Twitter or X uh, in your view, professor, do they have any ability left at all to address the spread of disinformation or is it truly just the wild, wild west?
2: I mean, yeah, for, you know, ability and and interest, I think, are, are the two questions, right? I mean, and I think, yeah, as far as the the in-house expertise and in, uh, to to do it, that's that's mostly gone. Um, could we imagine that you know the will to to return to this kind of uh, you know work, uh, returning and then and then seeing them build that kind of staffing up again? Uh, I, I don't I don't think so. Not under under Elon Elon Musk's ownership. Uh, but, um, you know, should it change hands? I mean, that's the irony here is that, you know, there's so much inertia. There's so much sort of, you know, network effects, as we would say, in terms of you know people sticking around on that platform uh, just because it's you know, there's actually all kinds of costs associated with switching to a new one right. that I think I think, you know, I think X, Twitter, whatever we want to choose to call it, going forward, you know, it's it's still to me remains a revivable uh, platform. Should, should the current folks want to do it, or someone else want to do it?
1: Well, I think the the banks might be coming to take the keys away from Mr. Musk because <laughs> the, he owes he owes all this money to them. That they're like, how are you planning to pay this back? You know, uh, you brought in. $4.14 billion in advertising revenue in 2022. This year looks like you're going to do just under three. Brands aren't coming back. The ad business is down 60%. He he is holding Twitter under the surface of the water in the bathtub and waiting for it to drown, but the banks are not going to tolerate that. So they're going to have to come back and maybe figure out a way to repossess this and then uh, restaff it with you know people who actually care about you know, what's going out to their customers. Man, I don't know what I meant. I didn't mean to spend all afternoon dunking on Elon Musk, although I would. Professor, I wanted to ask you, uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about what's happening in Canada and the European Union. While we were away there, I found a press release on Meta's website. Meta, of course, is the parent company of Facebook. And they said on September 5th, today we are announcing that in the United Kingdom, France and Germany, we will deprecate facebook news a dedicated tab on facebook in the bookmark section that spots spotlight, spotlights news this is part of an ongoing effort to better align our investments to our products that people value the most as a company we have to focus our time and resources on things people tell us they want to see we know that people do not come to facebook for news and political content they come to connect with people and discover new opportunities passions and interests. My top line reaction to this, Professor, is good. I it I don't I, I'm not gonna lose any sleep over Facebook deprecating their news curation services and kind of getting out of the news business generally and letting it get back to what it was, you know, prior to 2010 and 2011, when they said, oh, people love sharing political news on Facebook. Now they're saying that people don't come to news for they I'm sorry, they don't come to Facebook for news and political content. Do you do you think that's right? Does that kind of square with your view on it?
2: Well, I certainly agree that, uh, you know, I'm happy to see the platforms get out of this space. Um, I would like to see, again, people return to to direct access. I always talk about news we should pull our news and not have it pushed at us, uh, and that way, you know, we have a little more proactive process of, of how we go about informing ourselves. Uh, whether you know, Facebook has a history. You know, whether whether their internal numbers actually show that, I you know, who knows? Facebook has has had a history of saying, you know, this is what people are telling us, and that's just how they, you know phrase that you know from a pr standpoint whatever their next actions are you know they famously said a number of years back that people want video and there was this famous pivot to video that affected the entire news industry as they tried to migrate to to making more video available on the platform and it turned out the numbers didn't bear that out at all (laughs) so um but whatever the reasons may be uh like i i think i think it's good you know you know what what we have to worry about is that proportion of the user base that is still operating uh, with the preference for these platforms being how they get their news, because now what that news product looks like is going to be more disinformation re- relative, you know, you know, proportional to news and journalism than has probably ever been the case uh, in, in you know in the recent past.
1: So what's your kind of outlook, Professor, when you think about the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, is there anything you think of that gives you hope that um, not just governments, but we as consumers and, and users of these products, is there any reason for you to be hopeful that we will find a way to kind of push the pendulum back in the other direction where we have greater control over what we see, or I mean, maybe control isn't the right word to use. We have a better understanding of what it is that we're looking at right now. I think it's all so new. It's all so fast. It's all moving so quickly and it's so easy and it's around us all the time that we just kind of take things at face value. You know, if somebody posts a video of a, a rocket striking a school bus and they say, look at what Israel did, or they say, look at what Hamas did. And it turns out that that video is five years old. And that's Bashar al-Assad bombing a a school bus full of children in Damascus. Totally different, you know, theater of conflict. Is there any reason to be hopeful that we are not just staring into a future where we're just going to drown in fake news, disinformation and such?
2: Sure. These these are the things I look at that that give, give me some hope. Uh, one is there was a, a, a recent announcement. There's a new consortium of philanthropy called Press Forward that's going to invest 500 million dollars in journalism uh, to help sort of, you know, tilt the scales a bit in terms of, of, of the economic support for legitimate news versus you know the the you know the ease of producing disinformation, which is you know costs a hell of a lot less. So if, we, if we're recognizing at least in this country that. Journalism um, needs help beyond the market mechanism that that can help sort of repopulate the information space with more uh, legitimate news and information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one. another two, and, and you used the phrase before the break. You know, the tobacco moment, uh, or is our is our thinking about the how digital platforms operate changing? Uh, you know, just this week, is it uh, how many thirty three? I think thirty three states attorney 30, general. I thought
1: it was thirty nine. Uh, I got that maybe. article over here.
2: Yeah, or, or have filed a complaint um, with, with, you know, against uh, against Meta, um, you know, essentially using the, you know, the tobacco, you know, lawsuit framework, which mm-hmm. is that you knew your platform was harmful. You knew it was addictive uh, and, and you move forward anyway. Uh, and, you know, whether, you know, that's huge, whether whether that whether that framework, you know, and, you know, proves to apply to these platforms, uh, that would be dramatic because what it could lead to, and again, this is not about creating a model where the government is standing back and saying this piece of content needs to come down, this piece of content needs to come down. It's about perhaps there being a social responsibility model where, say, there are regulations that say things like, you know, X percentage of your revenue should be devoted to, you know, policing harmful content, or, you know, you need to demonstrate X percent effectiveness in policing your platform for harmful content as measured by some third party auditor. You know, there are ways that this could work that could impose some social responsibility on these platforms that don't involve government making decisions about what is and what is not disinformation or what is, yeah. or what is not harmful. Um, you know, so there, there are some intermediate uh, approaches here that could be taken but you know, again, in our country, we haven't even taken those.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, I I feel a little bit better. I'm picking up what you're putting down. That seems like a reason to be hopeful. Um, Professor, I hadn't planned to do this, and I I hope that you don't have somewhere else you need to be. Can I keep you like 10 more minutes? Yes, sir. Oh, my God, wonderful. Thank you so much. That's very gracious of you. Coleman, let's step away. We'll come back with more from uh, Professor Philip Napoli, a professor of public policy at Duke University. I want to ask Professor Napoli about something that I kind of bang the drum on on this program every time I get the chance. What role should media literacy play in news consumption and our ability to know what's real and what's not? I'm Ian Hoke, and for Scoot, I'll be right back. 249 here on WWL Radio. Just a couple moments left with my guest, Philip Napoli, professor of public policy at Duke and the author of Social Media and the Public Interest, Media Regulation in the Disinformation Age. A couple texts I want to dispatch real quick here. Here's one that says, "You do know that the main reason Musk bought Twitter was because they were censoring truthful info that did not fit the leftist agenda. If you did not agree with Fauci or anything leftist, you were censored." Uh, I have sort of a uh, a nuanced position on this. I don't I don't disagree. I think generally with a blanket statement that some conservative voices were shadow banned. Uh, censored, blocked, uh, whatever you call it. I I like to think that for the most part, it's because they were violating the terms of service. But what do I know? But anyway, to the texter's other point, um, the main reason that Musk bought Twitter was not because he hated censorship. The main reason Musk bought Twitter is that a judge literally forced him to buy Twitter because he said he would, and then the board was like, God, okay, I guess. And he was to spend $44 billion. Okay, well, I guess we'll sell the company to him. And then he chickened out. And he said, no, 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 no. I don't. I was just popping off. I was just, uh, just kind of talking. You know, it's just funny. It's just a little joke, right, guys? And the judge said, no, you actually do have to spend that $44 billion. And that is why Elon Musk is the owner of Twitter. Uh, Professor Napoli, uh, with our closing moments here, I would like to speak with you just a little bit about uh, media literacy in general um it it's easy for scoot and i to kind of sit uh on this program and kind of you know take pot shots at uh news outlets that we that we don't like that we and the reason that we don't like them is because they lie to their audience uh and which which hurts everybody uh in the media uh, entertainment news complex and so people then will say okay well smart guy what what news do you think i should be watching what channel do you think i should be watching and I always kind of tell them you don't have to watch cable news at all. Um, you know, if you need something to watch, go watch birds. Uh, you know, anything. All cable news is trash. Some of it's worse than others. But um, you're the expert here. What do you recommend to people who ha- who are making a good faith, honest effort to educate themselves with the best information available, and they're not interested in partisan snipery? or, you know, human interest stories that don't really have anything to do with them. What, what, what would you point to, either specific outlets that you yourself trust, or what are some resources that you could point us to so that we can make decisions about what outlets we should trust?
2: Sure, that's a great question. Um, I'll answer the second part first. Um, there really are a lot of, of useful tools out there, Um Folks, you know, first of all, we have an incredible network of, of of fact-checking organizations operating not just in the U.S. but internationally. Politifact, factcheck.org, et cetera, uh, and 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 these organizations really truly don't think of themselves there's the notion of partisanship does not come into play in what they do they you know it's nothing frustrates them more when they hear somebody say there needs to be more liberal fact checkers there needs to be more conservative fact checkers how they go about their work facts are facts and 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 really partisanship shouldn't color that Uh, so they are useful to rely on they've you know they're great for fact checking our our politicians and elected representatives they've been hesitant in this country to go into the space of of Fact-checking the activities of, of of news media, though there is one called uh, service called Pundit Fact uh, mm. that does a bit, a bit of that. That would fact-check, you know, various, you know, in particular, cable news personalities, yeah. for example. Okay. Uh, then there are organizations like NewsGuard uh, that really actually try to evaluate and grade and sort of scorecard all of the news sources. Uh, out there, uh, according to some 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 basic criteria, and they issue, you know, fairly frequent reports on how different news outlets are performing or platforms are report, uh, performing. Uh, that's another type of useful uh, tool. So I encourage people to make uh, use of those. I encourage people to to look for the obvious superficial indicators that a particular story is um, you know, is intended to inflame or misinform. Um, if, you know, oftentimes if you have never heard of a source, uh, if that if that story has no actual author, we're seeing that a lot these days, uh, auto generated stuff. Uh, those are signs that, the, you know, that that this might not be legitimate. Um, you know, so that's you know, yeah. it's tricky because, you know, new media literacy, one of the things we always try to you know, sort of cultivate there is some skepticism. But you know, skepticism can go so far where people, again, trust nothing, and we don't. We don't want that either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, uh, I love um, you know, I love NPR on the way to work in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that to be a uh, uh, you know a pretty a pretty down the middle, very you know fact based uh, form of uh, of reporting. Uh, I like to, uh, you, know, the, you know, the old mantra of try to consult a diversity of sources. I think that's uh, useful. You know, I subscribe to the, and, but again, not not everybody, you know, it's it, it can be resource intensive too. Uh, right. You know, I, I, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post are in combo. I think a good way to get a, a sense of the national uh, news landscape. But most importantly today, people need to be better equipped and, and really careful about knowing how to distinguish between reporting and opinion as you mentioned cable news cable news is not journalism especially not in prime time we used to call that public affairs programming this is just people arguing about the events of the day or but they you know they got away from the arguing even even fox news and you know cnn used to have you know the left and the right you know commentators arguing with each other crossfire all dispense with that that sort of thing you know and that model is not great either Uh, but yeah, those, the cable news networks are, are, you know, at best public affairs networks, but at worst, something closer to propaganda, uh, networks, uh, you know, in in some cases,
1: turn it off, go outside. We got to stop there. Professor, I want to thank you so much for spending all this time with us today. We're all a little bit smarter for it. I can't wait to speak to you again, man. Have a great weekend.
2: Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: As always, thank you for your uh, your work, your way, and your time. Uh, I'm pretty late, so I'm just going to step away quickly. We'll be back with more of your calls, texts, and comments on WWL. BRB. I'm pretty much done complaining about Elon Musk for the day, but what I would like for you to do over the course of the next 10 minutes is text me what you think we should name the passenger rail line. Between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, that's going to open as early as 2027. I got a bunch of good suggestions already. I'd like some more, and I'll give those to you after the jump. Coming up here is more of WWL First News with Chris Miller, and I'll be back in just a few minutes. Stick around. Thanks. Be right back.